And Becky uh, was just, you know, she was what we would call a Molly Mormon. She was just a perfect woman. She baked her bread. She sewed her own clothes. She did all the things that the perfect homemaker, you know, Mormon would be. She pro- she wove her own thread from the hair on her back, her hair on her legs, you know. <laughs> that That's a joke. She didn't Maybe her armpit, you know, had a lot of hair, but, you know, the rest of it. So... That was my mindset, you know. Yeah, you're a hate. I can't stand this woman. All things continually lead back to serpents, dragons, fairies, Nephilim, and fallen angels. In the distance looms a mystical mountain. As Mike Heiser used to say, if it's in the Bible and it's weird, it's probably important. At its peak, a great fire burns, concealing the Prometheus lands. This development of this knowledge that's being talked about within the mystery schools. An ancient artifact said to reveal the hidden truth within a deliberately darkened world. There is a hidden history that's been deliberately obfuscated from the peoples of the world. Join us as we travel and explore the vast unknown. It's a hero's journey with dragons to slay, damsels to save, and innumerable treasures to hoard. Torches high. The Smithsonian, they'd call wind of a giant skeleton. They would send their agents out to get it. But it takes courage to move forward, to move out of the shadows, out of the uh, unreality that we think of as reality. We are all on the hero's journey. Mankind has been in contact with and influenced by extraterrestrials. Leave the Sitchin mound of bull feathers out of it. You know, look at it from a different perspective. A different perspective. Different perspective. Different perspective. Different perspective. All right, what's happening? What's up? Hold out your glass because we're about to fill it up. Welcome to the Prometheus Lens Podcast, the place where the conversations are always enlightening. I am your host, Justin, independent researcher and podcaster. Here, we like to use the allegory of the Prometheus lens to take a second look at everything. Well, today, we got a good episode lined up for you. How many of you guys have heard about Mormonism or actually looked into Mormonism or just, you know, heard things about it and never really took a deep dive on it. Well, you found yourself in a good episode today. I'm here with a, a lovely woman that I met last year, and she has an amazing story of how she escaped Mormonism. And she's going to sit down with us today and tell us about her experiences and, and her story. So uh, I'd like to welcome to the show today, uh, Tracy Tennant. Tracy, how you doing? I'm doing great, Justin. Thank you so much for having me on your program. Oh, you're very welcome. Uh, we actually met, uh, it was October of not this past year, but the year before at the uh, Hear the Watchman Conference in Louisville, Kentucky, right? That's right. When I saw you, I was thinking, that man looks like trouble. <laughs> oh, yeah. Thank you. I get that a lot. I get that a lot. It's like uh, my job, they uh, sent me to Japan. Uh, that I used to have. I used to do metalworking and they sent me over there for a few months to train. And uh, they, they told me straight up, they were like, you, you look like bad man, but we tell them you, you okay. <laughs> and I was like, what? And then like our HR guy, he's worked with Japanese his whole life. He was like, you know, you, you got tattoos and a beard and over there, they're, 
against tattoos and, and they are clean shaven, you, you look like Yakuza. <laughs> <laughs> well, I never thought you were a bad man. I just knew that you were trouble. <laughs> oh, yeah. Things up wherever you go. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Guilty as charged. <laughs> well, Tracy, uh, for those that uh, just get introduced to you, just go ahead and introduce yourself. Uh, likes, dislikes, interests. Just give us a feel for, for who Tracy is. All right. Well, my big claim to fame is being a mother of 10 children. I love being a mom. And uh, and coincidentally, in Mormonism, having a big family is part of their uh, part of their teachings. So uh, that that just fits right in. But I that's one reason that I'm so thankful that I had the opportunity to be LDS because it gave me the opportunity to have so many wonderful kids. And I know that uh, it, it's a difficult place for somebody coming out of Mormonism. There's a, a period of time afterwards where, you know, there's, there's disbelief, there's anger, there's grief. And, and then there comes a point where, you know, a lot of people who leave, they just wash their hands of it. I'm through with it. I'm through with the people. I'm through with the culture. And, you know, they can't find anything good to say about it. But when, when you ask God to bring healing, you can look back and be thankful for the things that he brought you through in whatever experience that you've had, whatever background you come from. And I think about Moses, how he was raised as an Egyptian prince, he was raised in the courts of the Pharaoh and he, he learned how to be princely. You know, he learned how that, that royal bearing and how to be a leader and all, all that. And then when he came out of that and then, you know, God used his experience. I don't think Moses just kicked himself and, and said, Oh, I just hate that I came out of that experience. I, I don't like that background. I'm sure that he was thinking thankful for everywhere in life God had taken him through because God will use it for the good. So that, sorry, I'm preaching now, but. Uh. <laughs> no, that's something a lot of people miss is, you know, that shapes you and who you are. Cause a lot of people, the way I look at it, when they come out of Exodus and they, you know, built the golden calf, well, that's because these people were raised in Egypt and they worshiped this, this calf. So they were just stuck in their, ways of of how they were raised and what they were brought up in and and thank god moses was raised in a you know a, a kingly home you know because he learned how to rule a large group of people mm -hmm. yeah. so that definitely he used his experiences to to help his situation for sure mm -hmm. well I'll, I'll tell a little i'll tell my story if you if you want to hear it it's pretty yeah. amazing so um i didn't grow up with a religious background I went to Sunday school for maybe a couple of months when I was five, six years old. And that was the, that was the, about the end of my religious upbringing. So when I went to junior high school and I had a, my best friend was Mormon. I didn't even, I didn't even know what Mormon was or anything, but she kept inviting me to, uh, to attend church with her. And I kept turning her down. And then one time she said, you know, at church, we're having a square dance. And I'd really like you to come. Well, I love square dancing. I love any kind of dancing. And I thought, how can I turn this down? So I, I went there with her and I just felt like I was coming home. 
because the the people were amazing. They were so warm and friendly and they had good values and they were the same kind of values that were important to me. I mean, even as a, as a preteen and a young teen, you know, my parents, uh, they were good people, but they, like most secular people, they, they drank, um, they smoked, they swore, you know, it was your, your typical, uh, non-religious household. And, uh, but I, yeah, I never had a desire to, to drink or to swear or anything like that. So when I went to the LDS church, LDS Latter-day Saint, another word for Mormon, and, uh, it was just wonderful. I felt like I fit in. And I came home that night from the dance and I was like, mom, I want to be baptized into the Mormon church. And she's like, you've only gone one time. <laughs> you need to wait. And she really didn't know anything about it either, other than just parental wisdom. Look, you don't know anything about it. Wait a while. Be patient. And so I asked if I, if she would let me be baptized on my 14th birthday, which was several months away. And she said, we'll see. And that was the, that was my birthday present. That was all that I wanted to, was to be a Mormon. And, uh, and it was just uh, such a wonderful experience for me. And uh, then I thought, you know, being around all these wonderful LDS people and being part of this community, I want to be somewhere where everybody is Mormon, you know? And so my first thought, Utah, I've got to get to Utah somehow. And not only that, but one of the perks of living in Utah was that's where the Osmond family lived. <laughs> You're probably too young, Justin, to, uh, to know about the Osmond family, but they were the, the teen idols of the 1970s. So I begged my parents, can we at least, you know, take a trip to Utah? And, uh, and we did. We went to Utah and looked and, and the beautiful mountains and the streams and it, it was a outdoorsman paradise. And they were tired of California. We, you, that's where I grew up. So they said, yeah, you know what? Let's, let's move to Utah. So I, uh, we went to Utah. I found out what, what uh, congregation in Mormonism, it's called a ward, W-A-R-D, just like with voting, you know, neighborhoods are are sectioned off into wards. And it's the same thing within the Mormon church. You don't just go to any of the churches at any time. You have to go according to the neighborhood that you live in and the time slot that you're assigned to. So I did a little research, found out which ward the Osmonds went to because my heart was set on marrying Donnie Osmond. And, uh, and so we, we moved and I was able to attend the same congregation that the Osmond brothers did. And, uh, and I even asked Donnie for a date and he said, yes, I, I just, wow. this is the beginning of my, you know, forever dream is uh, I'm going to marry him and live happily ever after. And uh, so it was a girl's choice dance at the high school. So I asked him if he would accompany me and he was just so warm and kind. And he took my hand into his, I, I still haven't washed it. That's why it looks a little, you know, grimy <laughs> after 50 years. So, uh, <laughs> So he he accepted the invitation, and then a couple weeks later, unfortunately, he he called me. He had to break the date because they were going uh, on some kind of a tour or whatever. So I had to settle for a mere mortal for a husband, and uh, 
you know. Uh, so I married somebody, a uh, uh, handsome guy who played the piano. I sang, and he came from a family of sixteen children. Well, how did he hold a candle to to that? I know, and I, I'm thinking, oh, I didn't quite make it. You know, I, I thought I could beat my mother-in-law's record, but <laughs> so we got married and um, moved to Las Vegas so that we could make the big time. And uh, instead, you know, we started having a family, and it's really hard to become uh, famous celebrities when you're when you're raising babies. But, uh, you know, we were really active in the in the Mormon church while we were there. We took it seriously. And in fact, one of the several of the early Mormon prophets um, and in Mormonism, the leaders of the church are considered prophets, seers and revelators. So there's a head prophet. And then underneath him, they have the quorum of the 12 apostles so they try to uh, name the leadership and the hierarchy the same way that they uh, figure that, you know, Jesus organized the, the church in his days, which. So it's kind of like the uh, deacons of a modern day church. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but we know that in real life, Jesus didn't come to organize a church, he came to save, you know, mankind. And um, it wasn't about organizing a church, but uh Anyhow, um, so some of the earlier Mormon prophets have taught that we that a good, uh, righteous couple should not limit the size of their family, that they should have as many children as God was willing to send them. And the difference between that and say what, um, what a, a Christian family might think, look, I just want, you know, God to bless us with children within the Mormon theology. God or heavenly father is married to multiple wives and they have uh, spirit children, spirit babies that the goddess wives actually give birth to in the same process that mortal people do. And so here are all these spirit children, spirit up there waiting to come down into mortality, to be born and receive mortal bodies. Because the end goal in Mormonism, it's called eternal progression. And you progress from uh, being, you know, a spirit being, in a, a pre-existent state all the way through mortality. And if you are worthy enough, then you can progress beyond this life to become gods of your own worlds. And then you and your spouse or spouses would populate those worlds. And so this is an eternal thing that goes on and on and on. Gods and worlds and more gods and more worlds. But, um, you know, if you ask a Mormon, they, they would say, no, we only believe in one God, which is true in Mormonism. They only worship one God for our planet, for our world. But there are other gods out there somewhere in other galaxies. So it really, it almost sounds like like Star Wars in a, in a galaxy far, far away. And um, like a little so, bit of Scientology mixed in, you know, you got the whole space thing, you know? Yeah. And when you were talking about it, I thought of like uh, 
because I've been looking into a lot of Freemasonry and and stuff like that. The uh, the thought of alchemy, you know, the the mm-hmm. spiritual alchemy, is uh, you know self cultivation. You know, you start as a uh, what they call the the rough ashlar, or a really rough unformed stone. But through the work, you know, good deeds and things like this, you become perfected and purified and your life. You're constantly going through these stages of purification and self-cultivation to uh, improve yourself, to be, you know, more more godlike. Yeah, that's interesting because um, Mormonism, uh, the Mormon temple and the ceremonies that and rituals that take place in there are actually based on Freemasonry. So that could be where the founder of Mormonism, Joseph Smith Jr., back in 1820, that could be where he got a lot of his ideas from. So And there's there's been a so few we, little correlations that I found, but and that's why I really want look forward to talking to you because I don't really know that much about it. I know just the the basics, but I'd heard mm-hmm. through some of the stuff that I've been listening to and reading, you know, I had heard about that, but then I also heard about the, uh, the white lambskin, uh, apron, the covering. And I'd read mm-hmm. that a lot of Mormons, uh, get buried in those because that that's a Freemasonry thing too. That's supposed to be right. like your covering before God. Yeah, you uh, uh, faithful Mormons, temp- temple bearing or temple attending Mormons are supposed to be buried in their temple clothing, which uh, for the women, of course, would be the white dress. For the man, it would be a white suit. And then they have the temple clothes on top of, of that, like the apron that you talked about. And what's interesting is that the apron that's used in the Mormon temple ceremonies it's a green apron and it's and it's got a fig leaf design and it's supposed to be symbolic of like when Adam and Eve tried to hide their nakedness when God came looking for them and i it's just really interesting that you know in why would because it's a false religion that's why and because satan is behind all you know false religions but yeah, why would they want to cover themselves with fig leaves? I mean, in, in the temple ceremony, why not something godly? Why not, you know, like the, the skin of a lamb or a, a deer, something that was sacrificed the way that Jesus was sacrificed in our behalf? So, And, and even the promise, yeah. too. You know, you said that, you know, if you progress and do what you, you know, everything you need to do, you will become a god. And rule over a you know a planet or whatever, isn't that the the lie that we were told in the garden? But to eat the yeah. apple and ye shall be as gods. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and in one way or another, it's you know all the the false religions in some way have that as part of their uh, their goal, whether it's to become a god or to become enlightened or to you know elevate through all these spiritual. Uh, levels to become like God or to surpass God. So that's, yeah, that's because, you know, Lucifer is behind all of that. That was his goal. Yeah. So we, we were there in Las Vegas. We, we had kids. I'll, I'll skip a lot, but this, this is crucial to the story on how amazing God is and what a sense of humor he has. So when I was dating 
my my first my husband whom I had the chill all the children with, he was dating another woman at the same time. I was 15. I don't know what, and he was 23. I don't know what my mother was thinking. I mean, if my daughter came to me at age 15 and said she's going out with a 23 year old, you know, I'd be out there with a shotgun. <laughs> you stay yeah. away from my daughter, you know, different time but, though, um, you know? Yeah. Well, and not only a different time back in the seventies, but also a whole different culture, a whole different mindset in Utah at that time. So, uh, so we started dating and he started dating some, uh, a woman from the ward who was closer to his age at the same time. And he couldn't make up his mind which one of us he would want to marry because who it's an eternal marriage. When you get married in the temple, you, you are sealed to that person. You're basically stuck with that person for the rest of eternity. And so this was a huge decision. And he didn't want to make a mistake. And he was thinking, well, if I say yes to one, I'm turning down a million other girls that I could marry. So he, he was just, you know, very, uh, um, he didn't like the idea of commitment and responsibility. Let's put it that way. <laughs> so he was dating the two of us for four years. And it was a horrible, horrible love triangle experience. And for us girls, you know, we're thinking about polygamy, which Mormonism was also founded on polygamy. And that was, that's part of Mormon theology as well. That beyond this life, a man could be sealed forever and ever in a marriage covenant to many women and have many wives. And I was thinking if this, if this is just a little taste of what it's going to be like in heaven, when I have to share my husband with somebody else, I don't know that I want any part of this. <laughs> and um, and Becky uh, was just, you know, she was what we would call a Molly Mormon. She was just a perfect woman. She baked her bread. She sewed her own clothes. She did all the things that the perfect homemaker, you know, Mormon would be. She pro she wove her own thread from the hair on her back or hair on her legs, you know. <laughs> that That's a joke. She didn't Maybe her armpit, you know, had a lot of hair, but you know, so that was my mindset, you know. Yeah, you're a hate. I can't stand this woman. And finally, after the end of four years, that certain things happened, and it ended up that I was the chosen one, and uh, and Becky went off and married somebody else, and so we yeah, were, take that, we Becky. <laughs> we we were enemies. I mean, sworn enemies. And God used that woman to bring me to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ 20-something years later. So God has a sense of humor. So what happened was, um, you know, I, I, was, I didn't question whether Mormonism was true. I mean, you know, it, because they, they say that you can tell that it's true by the burning in the bosom, they call it. And they get that from the, the Mormon leadership got that from the Bible, you know, where I, I don't know if it's in Matthew or, or Mark, where on the road to Emmaus, the, there were two disciples walking along the road and the risen savior 
in disguise was walking with them. And then at the end, when he revealed himself, when he was breaking bread, and isn't that another amazing story? He's breaking bread. He broke the bread and put it out there. And I think that that's when they saw the wounds in his hands. And then boom, he disappears. And they were like, didn't our hearts burn within us that we knew who he was? And so within the Mormon context, you know something is true by that burning in the bosom, by that that warm feeling that you get. And so it keeps on being reinforced in the mind of a Mormon that more, the, the church is true. And in fact, once a month, they have on the first Sunday of each month, it's called fast and testimony meeting. And the uh, members are encouraged to fast for 24 hours. And then during the service, the worship service, People get up at the microphone, everyone from, you know, three years old on up who wants to has a turn at the microphone and they'll get up there and they will testify and they will say, this is, this is kind of the standard thing that they, they'll say along the lines of, um, I know the church is true. I know that Joseph Smith was a true prophet. I know that our church is led by a prophet today. I love my mom and dad or my husband or my whoever uh, in Jesus name. Amen. And, and so on a monthly basis, this is reinforced over and over and over again from the, from cradle to grave pretty much. So uh, I wasn't really questioning whether Mormonism was true, but I had questions because why was it that people in other religions we're having spiritual experiences. Why was it that my, because my husband would listen to Christian radio. It was the only radio station that was on at the place that he worked. And he would come home and tell me these stories that he was hearing on the, on the Christian broadcasts, like people being healed and people having prayers answered. And we just couldn't understand how come they don't even, they don't even belong to the true church and they're getting answers to prayers. It just didn't make sense. And and all the strict rules it. too that they follow, you know, because the, they're yeah, you know, you know, going basically by the the covenant laws, and they have really strict diets and their the clothing they wear. And it's like if you're that person in that circle and you're not having prayers answered or or, or seeing the the Holy Spirit move, you're like, you know, why not these heathens over here getting experiences why ain't i (laughs) yeah exactly yeah it is a very works-based religion it really is and it's not just keeping you know what we would as christians what we would consider commandments in the bible yes it's that plus so much more you have to be a full tithe payer to the church so not only do you give 10 percent to the church, but you also have to give offerings above that in order to be worthy to go to the temple. You know, you're instructed not to see R-rated movies. You're instructed to obey the word of wisdom, which is their dietary laws. And um, and it has nothing to do with don't eat pork or, you know, it, not, it has nothing to do with being biblically kosher. It has to do, you're not supposed to drink caffeinated drinks, no tea, no coffee, no alcohol. You're supposed to be sparing with meat and there's there's all these different uh provisions in there that you're supposed to follow and not all mormons do but i mean you know no matter what religion a person is in 
very few people actually follow everything that they believe is right. So this isn't poking fun at, at Mormons or anything. So, um, and in fact, I had, I had friends who we'd go over, our family would have dinner with their family. We were just really close and they would have Pepsi and Coke. And I would be thinking they are on the high road to apostasy. <laughs> Call the heresy hunters. <laughs> yes, exactly. Heresy hunters. Yes. Even, even then that's what I was. So, uh, this, I had these questions and one day, um, and I especially had the, this, this sounds off the wall, but this is just all ties into my spiritual journey. So one of my sons, uh, num uh, child number five, he worked all summer on an ice cream truck to save up money for an exotic fish. And I think it was like a Jack Dempsey or some type of fish. It was super ugly. I don't know why he wanted it, but it was like 50 something dollars for this one fish. So he saved up his money. He buys this fish, puts it in his perfect little fish tank. And then uh, we took the family to the park. And when we got home, my son, mom, mom, my fish is gone. And I'm like, what do you mean it's gone? It's not in the tank. Where is it? So we're looking all over. We're looking on the floor. Can't imagine where this fish was. Well, what happened was there wasn't a lid on the tank. And so the fish jumped and it landed on the on the windowsill. And so here's this this fish. I mean barely alive and I'm trying to gently peel it off the windowsill. You know, some of the paint is, is stuck to its little gills and and my son was in tears and and I said don't worry we'll I'm sure it'll come it'll it'll revive let's just put it back in the tank and see what happens so we put it in the tank and of course you know down to the bottom and it just laid there so we propped it up against this little undulating pirate ship and and i i thought this is a perfect opportunity for curran that's my son's name for curran to know that the church is true and so i went in 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 my room and i got down on my knees and i just prayed heavenly father Please make the fish revive. Just resurrect that fish. Just bring it back. And then, and then this way, Curran will know that you answer prayers and that the church is true. And I mean, I had all these grand visions in my mind. One day he's going to be one of the apostles of the church and he's going to stand up there at the pulpit in Tabernacle Square and, and say, I remember the day that I knew the Mormon church was true. It was when I was 10 years old. You know, I saw so my imagination is just going and. So in my prayer, I was like, please heal it right away. But if, if it's not, then just make it die right away so it doesn't have to suffer. Well, day after day after day, this fish is just <laughs> little gills going in and out. And I mean, my heart, this poor fish, you know. And finally, after, after like two weeks, the fish finally died. And I know it sounds maybe stupid or naive or crazy, but that was a crisis of faith for me. It really was. You got both requests denied. 
Yeah, I I mean, we I would hear testimonies in in different church meetings of people who just gave these fantastic stories about how they prayed for their dog and, you know, the dog's leg grew back or, you know, the frog got ran over by a car and and uh, the little boy prayed and, you know, and I'm thinking all these other people get testimonies to know that the church is true and my own son can't have that experience. What is wrong? So it really was kind of a crisis of faith. And during that time that I had this crisis of faith, uh, the Relief Society president, now that's, that is the head of the women's ministry. So within a, a ward or a congregation, the, the bishop is kind of equivalent to a pastor and he's got the highest position of authority within a, a ward. And the next highest position is the Relief Society president or the head of the women's ministry. Well, she passed away. And typically when, you know, there's a, an opening like that, the bishop will, will right away try to fill that position. And, and these are not paid positions. These are like, if the bishop calls you up on the phone and says, sister so-and-so or brother so-and-so, uh, the Lord has called you to be whatever, then you don't turn it down because it's like turning God down. So a couple weeks went by and nobody was asked to be the Relief Society president. And every time we came to church, all through the week, there's different meetings. And I noticed that the bishop would, was looking at me kind of oddly. <laughs> and I started to get nervous. <laughs> And I even told my husband, I, I have this awful feeling that he's going to call me to be Relief Society president. And, and I was not the presidential type. I mean, a frumpy, dumpy mother of 10. Uh, you know, I wore men's pants, not, not because I had any gender confusion and, but, you know, men's t-shirts just because they were cheap and we were poor, you know, they needed and a I, sister you know, Mary. I didn't have a, a have a purse, you know, so I needed deep pockets and girls' pants didn't have deep pockets, but guys' pants, gosh, there's pockets on the side and in the back and all over the place. It was it was a it was a paradise for someone who didn't have a purse. So <laughs> so I just didn't see myself as as that type of person. I didn't see myself as a sophisticated, you know, high class woman. I I just didn't. And um and so hey guys what's up tom dunn here from through the black we have launched our new ministry outreach no more dead babies and the website is nomoredeadbabies.com we want you to go to that website and get a free t-shirt okay um and uh we want you to join the movement okay we need soldiers to step up and say that they're going to be a voice for the voiceless okay Guys, we've never done anything like this before. This is a big deal, and I don't know who all is ready for it out there, but it's time to step up, okay? And we're asking you to go to the website and order the shirt. The shirt is free, but you gotta pay for shipping, okay? Um, and uh, we're gonna ship it out to you as soon as we get it. You, you tell us what size you need, and then we're gonna send you the T-shirt, okay? Join us. Uh, the goal is to get thousands of these shirts I keep pushing this I think this boldness can be contagious 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 my name's Nick 
I'm the owner of Kevlar Joe's and I'm the roaster. I'm an Air Force Security Forces veteran, a dad to three wild boys, and a husband to my wife, Crystal, and a coffee enthusiast. From a family in a small town in Missouri, we started with the simple idea of crafting a perfectly bold cup of coffee. Inspired by wellness and countless pots of stale coffee while deployed, we wanted to craft a bold, clean, and smooth coffee. So we did. And we realized we wanted to share this coffee with our friends. Lord knows we could all use a good cup of coffee right about now. From the farm to your coffee cup, there's nothing like a good, well-crafted, and bold cup of coffee. No matter what time of the day, it's there to pick you up motivate you and relax you we hope you enjoy our coffee be bold be humble be kevlar and you can find kevlar joe's coffee company anytime you want at www.kevlarjoe.com enjoy during this time uh i i get a phone call well Here's, here's a funny experience. Um, I was teaching in the Relief Society. That's what I did for like six years. And I loved teaching. I still love teaching. And, and so I was teaching this lesson. And I always tried to do this, do my lessons to be entertaining and interesting when I started out. I'd always have like this object thing that I would tie into whatever the message was. And so this, this one Sunday, I brought a beautiful strawberry cake and I had, it, it was just amazing. I, it, it looked beautiful. It had whipped cream and strawberries and, and the frosting and everything. And I set it on this, uh, on this, you know, these, one of these crystal plate, uh, cake plates. And I, and I started my lesson by saying, you know, I brought this cake so that we could enjoy it after class, but I think it looks too good. Why don't we just have it now? And of course, all the ladies are, oh, yes, you know. And I said, who would like the first piece? And this, there was a woman there who was new to the ward. She was, um, you know, sitting like close to the front. And she was a, a black woman. She was probably the only black woman in our congregation she was probably the only black Mormon in all of Las Vegas. She may have been the only black person in the whole Mormon church. I mean, <laughs> because it's really, kind of, it, it is, it's like a, a white church pretty much, or it used to be. And so she said, I'd like a piece. So I grabbed a paper plate and I dove my hand into that cake and I picked, I just picked up a handful and I slapped it on the cake and I handed it to her and the whole class just burst out into, into laughter. And then I went on to explain what the purpose, purpose of that was, what the symbolism was. I was like, well, the gospel is such a beautiful thing, just like this cake. And so when we present it to other people, we have to present it with class and dignity and not just carelessly. Well, this, this poor lady was so offended. She didn't hear a word that I said. And so now she's coming up the aisle with, with this cake in her hand and she's trembling and I'm wondering what's happening. I'm thinking, Oh, I wonder if she's going to thank me for such a good object lesson. <laughs> I wonder if she's going to give me a hug, you know, Did she plant no. that pie on your face. <laughs> we took that plate 
full of cake and just slammed it into the side of my head. And then she ran out of the classroom just crying and swearing. I, I don't think those kind of words had ever been heard <laughs> within the four walls of that building. Oh, wow. And so now I'm standing there and I'm thinking, okay, what just happened? I can, I can just fall apart and cry. Or then the entertainer in me was saying, or the show must go on. And so, you know, wiping whipped cream out of my eye and a strawberry out of my ear, you know, I, I just, yeah, just went on with the lesson and, and people were, I mean, dead silence. Oh yeah. They were mortified. <laughs> and, and this sweet young mother, she was probably only in her twenties and she was in tears and, and she came up and here I am at the, at the podium and I'm teaching my lesson and she's got these paper towels and she's, she's wiping the whipped cream out of my hair and she's wiping it off my neck. And, and I'm, my mouth is teaching the lesson, but in my mind, I'm thinking, you know, if I ever become rich and famous, I wonder if I'll be primped over like this while I'm on camera, you know? So, uh, so that is what clinched the deal. I think in the Bishop's mind, because I didn't fall apart. I handled it with, with dignity. And I do have to tell you the end of that little story. So I, I, I when I got home, I found out that she thought the, the woman thought that I had disrespected her because of her color. And then I got mad. I was so angry. I was like, well, how dare she just because I'm white, that doesn't mean that I'm a, a bigot, yeah. you know? And she raised her and, hand first. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's the only reason she was closest to the, to the front. So I, I prayed and I was like, Lord, help me to respond appropriately. So I calmed down and I went out and the next day and I bought a bouquet of flowers. I bought a card. I bought some candy and I wrote in the card how much I appreciated her and how sorry I was that she had probably grown up with a lot of uh, prejudice. You know, she was an older woman. She probably had to sit in the back of the bus. She probably was forced to drink from a different drinking fountain. And once I began to try to look through her perspective, I had compassion. And so I, I said, please don't let this experience keep you from coming back. I look forward to seeing you in, sun, in, in class in Sunday school. And so I left it on her doorstep and, um, and that really made a, a big impression on the bishop. So he was probably thinking, this is the kind of leader that we need for the women. So he called me to be the Relief Society president. And, and I think God had the real God had a plan for that because I ended up leaving the church while I had this high profile position and it shook a lot of people's faith. So, so I, so some of my friends in the ward, they're like, um, you know what? You should be on the Oprah show. And I was like, Oprah, I don't even watch Oprah. We didn't watch TV. That's how we ended up with 10 children. I mean, you know, <laughs> who, who has for, for TV? So, uh, so they said, no, really, really go to the Oprah website and you'll see that she's always looking for guests. 
So I got on there and there was a, a, a episode coming up for a frumpy clothes makeover. And I was like, well, I can do frumpy. That's a piece of cake, you know? <laughs> so I, I thought, okay, there's going to be hundreds of people sending in these videotapes. So how can I stand out from the crowd? I know I'll write a song. So I wrote a song called the frumpy clothes blues had my husband playing on the piano. My daughter videotaped it. And it's like, I get up in the morning, put a t-shirt on, slip into my sweats that are baggy and long. And on and on the song went about these frumpy clothes. And then I send the tape off. And a few days later, I get a phone call. Mrs. Crookston, how would you like to come to Chicago? <laughs> so they flew me out there to Chicago to be on the Oprah Winfrey show. I, it sounds like I'm going down a rabbit trail, but this is all tied in to how God used these experience, experiences to bring me to the truth. So I flew out there and was just treated with uh, such high-class accommodations. You know, they put me in Oprah's five-star hotel. They put me, you know, you served me dinner in her five-star restaurant. So here I am in these jeans with holes in them and this, you know, my husband's best T-shirt because I didn't have very many clothes of my own. And I'm in this high-class restaurant and there's people in there with their furs and their diamonds and their tuxedos. And I mean, I just felt so out of place. And then to Fart in Sunday school. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then to top it off, the waiter would come by every few minutes with this little whisk broom and he's brushing crumbs off. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is so embarrassing. I mean, I really such a slob, you know, I mean, I look down and, and I, I've got crumbs all over. My bosom looked like a snack tray, you know, <laughs> so I tried to surreptitiously, you know, brush things off. And <laughs> but it was. I don't think my face has hurt this much talking to anybody. <laughs> I'm smiling so much, my face hurts. <laughs> oh, sorry to, to be the cause of your pain. No, no. Um, so I, I was on the the program, and um, I wanted to stay an extra day, but they had only paid for a certain amount of time at the hotel. And one of the other guests who was actually a professional model, she was a Christian. And she, she said, well, you know, you can spend the night at me and my husband's apartment. And I thought that was so sweet. So I, I spent the night and here's this Christian couple. And in the morning, I, and they were just so, so pleasant, so nice. And they made this fancy breakfast for me. And while we were sitting at the breakfast table, the, the husband, he pulls out a Bible and he says, do you mind if, if we talk a little bit about scripture? And I'm like, sure, of course. You know, I'm thinking, here's my opportunity to get a Mormon convert, you know? And, and so he's asking me about what the Mormon view is on God and on the Godhead. And so I explained, well, you know, there's there's three gods. Uh, Heavenly Father is a god, Jesus is a god, and the Holy Ghost is a god. And he says, yeah, but the Bible says that they are one. And I was like, yeah, one in purpose. They're not one, one. And so he's he's trying to explain the importance of knowing the character and nature of God. And I just didn't get it. You know, I mean, it was a good conversation, but I just didn't get it. And, and I was like, I, I just don't understand what difference it makes. 
and, and I was, I mean, disrespect. I wasn't purposely being disrespectful, but looking back, I see, you know, I was like, what difference does it make if, if, if God is some big puffball in the sky that we can't see or whether he has a body of flesh and bone like, like we do and has spirit children? I just don't understand. And so that was my first exposure to, to seeing that there's a, a whole different worldview. <laughs> on the character and nature of God in the Christian community. So I, I get back to Las Vegas where we lived. And with the day that the show aired, that's when, when God really worked his magic. I get this phone call and it's Becky, my arch enemy from 20 years before, you know, and I'm like, why in the world is she calling me? Yeah, Becky, I've been on Oprah, and I'm the Ministry of the the Women's Ward, and how are you doing? (laughs) So she tells me her her story. She says that uh, she was out at work. She was a waitress, and she worked at this restaurant that was always busy, always busy. She, She never got off of work early, and that particular day that I was on Oprah, it, after the lunch hour, it was dead. And so her boss said, Becky, why don't you just go ahead and take the afternoon off? So she goes home. She hits the record button on the VCR. Uh, do people know what VCRs are? <laughs> your, your younger audience here. But uh, she hits the record button and goes off to, I don't know, make dinner, clean up. She comes back. She hits play. And within the first two minutes of the videotape playing, here comes Tracy down the aisle of Oprah's uh, stage wearing these fancy clothes, uh, singing the frumpy clothes blues in the background. And she's, and the woman, the announcer introduced me and Oprah. Here we have Tracy from Las Vegas, the mother of nine. At that time, I only had nine children. So, uh, <laughs> so Becky looks me up and she calls and she tells me, that she stopped weaving clothes from the hair on her legs. No, she didn't say that. (laughs) (laughs) But she did tell me that she left the church the year before. And my first thought was, ah, Heavenly Father set this up so that I could bring her back into the fold. But he had other plans. So I I said, how is that possible? Becky Becky was right again. Yeah, the, the church is true, you know. She said, well, about a year ago, I started reading the New Testament, and I came to realize that Mormonism isn't true. And I'm like, well, I've got to read that New Testament. I don't know what could be in there, you know. And so I thought, well, I'm just going to read it to, to prove her wrong. And she called me. This was before, you know, so, uh, this was when landlines cost money, like it was like 12 cents a minute or whatever. But if you call on weekends, it's free. And so she called me every single weekend for six months. And she didn't try to talk me out of uh, Mormonism. She didn't, you know, tell me any of the problems with the church, really. But she just kept telling me about the love she had for Jesus and, and the love that she had for the Bible. And 
And I was thinking, how is this possible? Because we were taught that when somebody apostatizes from the church, they become these darkened, horrible, bitter people. And not only that, but Brigham Young, the, the second uh, president or prophet of the Mormon church in the 1800s, Brigham Young said that their skin will even become wrinkled and black. And I, here's Becky. She was wrinkle-free and just as white as ever, and uh, <laughs> and and just testifying of her love of Jesus. And it really puzzled me. How is this possible? And then my sister-in-law, she she said, "Tracy, I want you to come with me to meet this this woman. She was excommunicated from the church, but." She saw an apparition. Her dead sister appeared to her, and she's got a special message. I want you to come with me. So I thought, well, fine, I'll go with her. See, that's what I was about so to I ask, because I've always heard that when someone leaves the church that they are excommunicated, and you're not even allowed to speak to them anymore. So I, just, I didn't know if you were breaking any kind of church rules by even having phone conversations with her. I, You know what? I, I bet I was. I bet I was. <laughs> So I went with my sister-in-law to, to listen to this other person and she was, this other person was excommunicated because she had this vision that her deceased sister appeared to her and warned her, gave her a warning. And the warning was that the general authorities of the church would betray the members by making them give all their food storage. If you might know, Mormons are, are taught to try to have a year's supply of food and everything, that the leaders would betray the church by having the people give all their food to the United Nations. And I thought, that's not going to happen. So I didn't believe that. But the... I walked away thinking, here's this woman who's sincere as can be. I didn't, I didn't get the impression that she was making anything up or that she had anything to gain by sharing that story. And I was like, how is this possible? We've got Becky who intentionally left the church and she's just as spiritual as ever. And she has, these spiritual experiences and God answering her prayers. And then you've got this person who was excommunicated and she's seeing visions and, and, you know, I mean, when I went to the temple, I didn't see dead people. I had friends who saw dead people, <laughs> you know, reminded me of that movie, The Sixth Sense. I see dead people. Well, I wanted to see dead people and I wasn't seeing any, you know, <laughs> what's wrong with me? Am I not worthy enough? So, so it just really puzzled me. How can we have faithful members of the church who are having spiritual experiences in the temple and in their lives? And then Becky, who leaves the church and she's having these experiences. And then this woman who is excommunicated and she's having visitations. We can all be wrong, but we can't all be right. Somebody is being misled. Is it possible? It's me. And that's what got me thinking you know what, maybe I, maybe I do want to know the truth. And so I prayed and, and this is interesting because I would have never thought of this as an LDS person. I would have never thought of it. So I know that it was the Holy Spirit that put this into my mind that instead of just praying the usual heavenly father, I, I said, dear God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, I want to know the truth, even if it means I've been wrong all my life. 
And that's when God said, okay, now I can work with this woman. And it was just a few weeks later that I came across this, uh, this essay that was written by, uh, an apostate Mormon. And, um, and in this essay, it was only about eight pages long, but it was talking about the, the parallels between the Mormon temple ceremony and Freemasonry. And that didn't really bother me. I, I didn't think anything of that. But then he quoted Brigham Young as saying, and I, I'm just paraphrasing now, but he, he was quoting Brigham Young as saying, if I should find one of my wives whom I love so dearly, in bed with my brother, I would put a javelin through both their hearts and stand before God with clean hands because the sin of adultery can never be forgiven except by the shedding of their own blood. And my, and I thought, there is no way Brigham Young taught that. This guy who wrote this essay is a liar, and I'm going to prove it. <laughs> so I went down the, the uh, ward directory and I, I just started making phone calls to see who had the Journal of Discourses. It's a big 26-volume uh, set of books of all the, the doctrines and teachings of the early church leaders and of Brigham Young. And, and I finally found somebody who had, had a set. I said, can I come over and do some study? Sure, come on over. So I looked up every quote that this man put in there. And by golly, and I, and I looked with what I call 2020 vision. I mean, I read 20 paragraphs before and 20 paragraphs after to make sure that I had everything in context. And that was what Brigham Young had actually taught. And he actually, and then he also taught that no one would get to heaven without the express permission of Joseph Smith. And I was like, whoa. So Joseph Smith becomes there. God now. Exactly. Exactly. So the last straw for me, so that started like a, a seven week intense study. I was reading everything I could. I was going online and, and looking at people's stories of people who had left the church. And, um, and then the last straw for me was when I read in a historical book that Joseph Smith, of the, the 33 documented wives that he had, 11 of them were married to other men. And that was the last straw. I thought, okay, this guy is not a prophet of God. And then that number this 33, guy, too, that's a Masonic number. Oh yeah, yeah. This this guy has a hormone issue, for a polite way of saying it, you know, and uh, and that's what it was. This is not doctrinal. Why would as important a sacrament as marriage is? I don't think the real God would be telling him to take other men's wives. So that was it. I I washed my hands of that. And I had one more lesson that I was supposed to teach. I was supposed to teach like the following Sunday in Relief Society. As the Relief Society president, uh, I would give a message once a month. And I thought, okay, I can't, I can't leave until I give this last message. And so I made a lesson. You had to throw the cake me. in somebody else's ear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I did the lesson on beware of false prophets. And I wasn't yet bold enough because I mean, this, this was an emotionally devastating faith crisis time of life. 
So everything you knew was a lie, you know? Yeah. I I wasn't bold enough to, to tell everybody in relief society, Hey, run the other direction. This, this church is a a fraud. Um, but I did teach on beware of false prophets. And I, I read from Deuteronomy 13 and Deuteronomy 18 and how to identify a false prophet. And I was just saying anything that you hear in church that is different from what is, uh, what's taught here in the Bible then you can know that it's not of God. And, uh, and so that afternoon and everybody, Oh, that was such a wonderful lesson. And, and, and that afternoon I called the bishop up and asked him if he could come over. And he did. And I handed him my, my temple recommend. That's like my card carrying uh, certificate that says I'm allowed to enter the temple. And I gave it to him. And I said, I resigned my membership from the church. And he, uh, I gave him a letter saying that as of this day, I no longer consider myself a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and I want my name removed from the records of the church. And he he was really shaken, and he said, Sister Crookston, um, I'm asking you this as a friend, not as your bishop. Would you please wait a few months before I turn this into church headquarters, I want you to do a special study with your, with, with Scott, my husband and your home teacher. And, uh, and then after you do that study, then you can make your decision. And I said, well, okay. Now home teacher in Mormonism, you've got, uh, for the ladies, you've got visiting teachers. Now, now they, now they call them ministering, uh, ministering sisters or something like that. But anyway, the uh, women would come and visit. You would be assigned certain families that you would visit monthly. You just kind of check up on them, see if they need anything, and you'd give a special spiritual message. And the home teacher would be um, a, a man and either his son or, you know, some another man in the ward, an elder or a priest, and they would come to the home to just check in on the family and see if anything's needed. So our home teacher happened to be a, an attorney. And I thought, this is going to be, this is going to be so sweet. <laughs> we're going to get this guy with his razor sharp mind and we're going to have him look at the evidence and he'll see, he'll see that the church isn't true. But instead of being like a prosecuting attorney, and looking at all the evidence that we presented him with, he was more like a defense attorney for the church. And a hired he hand. Everything, swept everything under the carpet. And then when it came to polygamy, you know, he didn't seem to have a problem, a problem with, you know, Joseph Smith asking somebody else for their wife. And, and Scott looked at him and said, Brother Ellsworth, if... The president, if the prophet of the church came to you right now and asked for you to give your wife, Sonny, that was her name, your wife, Sonny, to him to be a, another wife, then what would you think? And he just kind of sat back and rubbed his chin. And he was like, well, I suppose that would be inappropriate. <laughs> so the end of the study for me i was thinking that would be inappropriate okay this this guy he's not serious the church isn't true 
I don't want the taint and the stain of false religion on me. And, uh, and so it was a little bit of a process to get my name removed from the records of the church. Uh, the bishop came to me about a month or two after, and he said, I, and he handed me this envelope and he said, this isn't the letter that you were hoping to receive. I was hoping to receive a letter stating that my name had been removed from the records of the church. And I, I knew right then and there what it was. He was going to call me to a church court. And, um, and that's exactly what it was. It was a church court so that they could grill me and interview me and excommunicate me for apostasy. And I just, I just threw the letter down and, and started to cry. And I said, how dare you? You said you were my friend. And, and I ran out of the room and, you know, I, I, they could show themselves out, but it was just so upsetting. And, uh, I contacted someone in Salt Lake City, an ex-Mormon, uh, who I saw in some kind of a, a chat room for ex-Mormons. And, um, she helps people get their names off the records of the church. So I contacted her and she said, I will help you, but I need to know, are you willing to go to the media? And to uh, court, if that's what it takes. And I said, you bet. <laughs> so, uh, oh, and when the bishop came over to give me this request to be part of a church court, he was saying, sister, the, I, the Holy Ghost, the Spirit told me that I needed to do this. Okay. So now I, I write my letter according to this woman's advice saying that I would go to the media if I needed to and I would, I would press charges if they did not honor my request. I didn't want to be excommunicated because of the stigma because I knew that I it mean, takes all the blame Mormons, off of them and puts it on you. You were the problem, not them. Yeah, exactly. It goes against their and retention ever, uh, of fellowship. Yeah. And if I ever try to share the real gospel with LDS people, I mean, they're not going to want to really listen to me anyway as a former Mormon. But if they knew that I was excommunicated, then right. It validates their thoughts. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, so I put in this letter, um, Bishop, I, I'm willing to go to the media with this. And then all of a sudden, all of a sudden he's like, sister, the spirit told me that I should cancel the church court. And I'm thinking, okay, like a lawsuit had nothing to do with it. You know, I, I guess the, the Holy Ghost didn't know in advance what I was going to do. So I finally got my name off the, off the records of the church. And, um, and God is just so amazing. I mean, the fact it just brings to my mind Romans 8 28. God will, you know, use all things for good for those, you know, who, who love him and are called according to his purpose. And so God took my arch enemy and reconciled me not only to her, but to him. I mean, how funny is that? How, how ironic is that? And, and Becky became such a good, good close friend. And she actually passed away a couple of years ago, just two, three years ago. And I miss her dearly, but I'm so thankful that she had the courage. She had the courage to share the truth with me. I mean, how, how amazing is that? 
I mean, that is, that's just amazing. And, and one thing, like I said, I, I've not really taken a, a, a deep dive on this, but what I've heard and what I've seen, it's a, a very male dominated religion and they put the men in power. And just like you were talking about the, the, the one that ministered to the house, you know, and just all these little fail safe steps they have were men to kind of keep the control in check. And, mm-hmm. and it's basically, especially the ones that are polygamous, they, they use religion as a way to satisfy their, their sexual lust. And uh, my wife, uh, was really interested into that, sh- that show. I can't remember the name of it now, but it's that guy with the long blonde hair from Utah that had like four or five sister wives. Big love. Yeah. That, Isn't that what yes, it was yes. Yeah. And so that's the only kind of experience that I had with it, but just watching it on that show, I was just like, a man has got his hands full. If he does it right with, with one wife, <laughs> And, and then you get all these multiple wives and, and it's just like when you look at Cody, I think was his name, you see the pattern repeating. He sees a woman, he's in lust, love with her, and he's all about her. And then when he gets tired of her, he gets another one. Then he's all about that one. And that one gets thrown to the side and it just progresses. And like the last one, yeah. like few episodes that I've seen of it was his newest wife was the, the youngest one. And he was so obsessed with her. And all about her and threw all the others to the side that basically the last I heard that all of them had just like left the family that they all just like got divorced and split from the family. Yeah, it's it's tragic. And there are a lot of polygamous groups, actually, uh, in different parts of the country. And some of them are so controlled that it's hard. It's difficult to escape. If if a woman wants to escape because they live in these compounds, and if a, uh, one of the wives, you know, wants to escape, then she has to leave her children behind. You know, it's it's just very sad, very sad situation. And yeah, in the in the church, it's a very patriarchal uh, religious system. And I'm not against the patriarchy. I. I I love men, not in that way. I mean, <laughs> but, you know, I, I have a, a high regard and a respect for men, and I don't have a problem with, um, you know, the man being the head of the household or, um, you know, the way it was in, in Bible times with, with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and just that succession. But um, when it's anything can be used in a wrong way. Yeah, but it's a loving, it's a lovingly submission. This way, I always saying it's if you are good to your wife and treat her with love and kindness and respect, she's going to willingly submit to you, you know, not just taking your your thumb and pressing down on her. You're going to obey, you know, I mean, from outsider looking in that that's what I see a lot with that. It's kind of a it's just a forceful control. Yeah. Yeah. And within within the um, Mormon church, we would have called we would have called that. Um, unrighteous priesthood dominion. So even within the church, we, we were able to see that some men would carry this to the extreme and not allow 
their wife or kids to do certain things or go places or have freedom or even to have money, you know, and, and that was certainly frowned upon. So I don't want people to get the impression that all LDS families have, you know, a, a jerk at the head of the family. That's just not, not so, but it can be carried to the extreme, just like anything can in, in any religion. Well, Tracy, uh, thank you for, for sitting down and telling us your story and it, you did not disappoint. It was an amazing story. And like I said, I'll say it again. I've, I've had a gut busting good time talking with you. Thanks. I had a good time too. I, I just appreciate being able to share my story with, with your audience because it's, it's not really my story. It's God's story. And if he can do these miraculous things for this, this little slovenly mother of 10, you know, just think what he can do for anybody else. Mm -hmm. so, Amen. Thanks so much, Justin. And uh, before we go, uh, let everybody know uh, how they can find you and, and your content and your website, because you are more than just uh, uh, an escapee. Yes, <laughs> I have a podcast it's on iTunes, iHeartRadio, various places. And the name of it is From Kolob, K-O-L-O-B, to Calvary. Kolob is the name of, within the Mormon uh, theology, it's the name of a star or that's close to the throne of God. So From Kolob to Calvary is my podcast. And then I also have a book, Mormonism, the Matrix and me, ta -da! and uh, and this can be found online through any of the major bookstores, Barnes and Noble, um, Christian Book, and um, I really recommend that that you get this because I'm proud of this. It's a good read, and I'm able to just share all the little details of of how God worked in my life. Oh, and if anybody wants to reach out to me through email, it's just Tracy T R A C Y. Tenant, T-E-N-N-A-N-T, -N -N at Outlook.com. And uh, you're speaking at a conference coming up here in a few months, too, right? Yeah, I'm excited about that. I am going to be speaking with Hear the Watchman in Dallas in April, and uh, it, we're going to be able to participate seeing the solar eclipse and it's going to be a great conference. I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah, I'll, I'll be seeing you there. Uh, Mike reached out and asked if uh, if I'd come there, and uh, if I would come, he'd, he'd give me a, a table to set up and a place to record. So I'll be uh, talking to you guys, uh, all the speakers, throughout the uh, the weekend. <laughs> awesome. I look forward to Yeah, me to too. It. Well, guys, thanks you for tuning in. appreciate uh, your time, your attention. And until next time, Torches High.